Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello when and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. Hello there, history friends, and how about that? Look who we have on the podcast. That's right, I thought it was only right after kind of going through Napoleon in a more detailed analysis, it was only right to get someone who could, well, kind of shoot the breeze about Napoleon with me. In my mind, there's no one better to do this, no one more qualified in both the podcast universe and also the academic universe than a certain J. David Markham. If you don't know J. David Markham, then you really, really should, especially if you're a fan of Napoleon and Napoleonic podcasts. You see, a few years ago, J. David Markham and Cameron Riley decided that it would be a good idea to sit down together and, well, start a conversational podcast about Napoleon Bonaparte, including all the issues that went along with him, like the French Revolution, diplomacy between the European powers during the Napoleonic Age, and so many other issues besides. It was in many ways... Well, to me, it was at least the first conversational podcast I listened to, and it was the second actual podcast I ever listened to. So since then, J. David Markham has always occupied a special place in my heart, and rightfully so, I think. So when I went around the task of redoing the Napoleon podcast that I had done five years before, I had it in my head, a certain kind of pipe dream, if you like. I thought if I could only get J. David Markham on side, if I could only somehow contact him and bring him on the podcast, then really all of this would become full circle. 
he's the guy who kind of, well, gave me the idea for doing talk episodes in the first place. But he also, well, introduced me to a side of Napoleonic history, French history, European history, what have you, that I'd never really kind of looked at before. In many ways, I owe him a great deal for doing that. But I also owe him a great deal for coming on this podcast because, yes, the pipe dream became a reality. The guy who I used to listen to on the bus thinking, this guy really knows his stuff, is on When Diplomacy Fails. It's so surreal. It's incredible. And honestly, of all the people that I got on the podcast, of all the favors that were done to me, I think this guy, (laughs) in many ways, this guy had me the most starstruck. Now, that's not to say he was high and mighty or very intimidating or anything like that. I mean, he's a very personable guy. He's a very obliging guy. And I mean, he's clearly a history friend because he massively helped us out. So I want to say a huge thanks to J. David Markham for coming on When Diplomacy Fails and collaborating with me to make this very, very special, what is a three-part interview. So how does all of this work? Well, above all, you should know that over the course of about two and a half hours, J. David Markham and I talked over everything from well, J. David Markham's actual career and his experience in dabbling in Napoleonic histories to Napoleon himself and a whole load of issues therein. The interview is split up handily into three parts. The first part kind of delves into J. David Markham himself. How did he come across Napoleon? Why is he so darn interested in him? And what other kind of historical interests does he have? As well as that, we also ask kind of his career as an academic. And it's a very interesting story, if you weren't aware. J. David Markham has really done everything. He owned a freaking photography studio, of all things. Like, wedding photography, he did at one point. That would come in handy for me, but yes, the wedding is done and dusted, so... Anyway, he's a very interesting guy, and that's before we even started to talk about Napoleon. In many ways, then, the first part of this interview can be seen as a sort of... Well, biography of J. David Markham, but not in a kind of self-indulgent sense. I think it's always interesting to get academics on of any level, of any caliber, of any experience. But J. David Markham is one of those guys who's really seen and done it all. And if you didn't know exactly how much he'd seen or done, then just listen to the list of achievements, the list of works, and, well, just how knowledgeable the guy is. It's incredible, and I really am indebted to him for coming on and helping out a fellow history friend. Thanks again, J. David Markham. I really, really appreciate it. What do the second and third parts look like? Well, these are the more Napoleonic-related parts. At the start of the second and third part of the interview, I'll kind of introduce them to you in more detail. But you should know that we go through everything with Napoleon. From who was his best ally, to who betrayed him, to his worst mistake, to good books on Napoleon, to the misconceptions about Napoleon, which we all know that J. David Markham loves to shatter, to a whole load of other things. How important was he as a figure? When did J. David Markham first become interested in him? Is there any room for further study on additional aspects of Napoleon's life? We even get into some alternative history in the third part, so all in all, it's a really, really good interview. I'm really proud of it in a way, because it's literally everything that I wanted five weeks to run wild to represent. A fun, personable, informative interview between two people who otherwise wouldn't know each other, but thanks to the miracle of history podcasting, here they are, and here you are, listening to us. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so, so much, and thanks again to J. David Markham. A huge reminder, a 
very worthwhile reminder. If you'd like to track him down and see why exactly the seed was planted in my head to get a man who is in many ways one of my podcasting, and that's not me exaggerating or kissing up, it's genuinely true. If you want to hear one of History Podcasting's greats, then check out the Napoleon 101 podcast. There will be a link in the show notes for each of the three parts of the interview, so make sure you click on that. And if you're not familiar with the works of J. David Markham and Cameron Riley, then I hope you enjoy it. And let me know, and let J. David Markham know what you thought. Because yeah, I'm very, very pleased with myself right now. So, without further ado, thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoy this first of three parts of the J. David Markham interview. Okay, history friends, welcome to a very special interview. You see, we did the eight-part series on Napoleon. And now, to sort of conclude, to add to this whole party atmosphere of five weeks to run wild, we have a very... (laughs) Very special guest, Mr. J. David Markham. How are things, David? I'm very well, thank you, Zach. And I want to thank you for having me on. And uh, I'm sure we're going to have a, a, a very fun time together. I don't know if it's really truly party time. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's about uh, a little before two in the afternoon here. And I tend to party a little bit later in the day. But uh, we'll do what we can. We'll do what we can. That's <clears> all I ask. We've got some great stuff to get through today. And I'm sure my listeners are really, really excited to hear kind of well, the the rest of the party, so let's get down to it, I guess. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, something, whenever whenever any kind of academic or, or person who's kind of participating in historical debate, whenever they appear, I always get interested myself in what their historical interests are. So I suppose my first question to you is, since you are kind of known to me and you'd be known to most people from the Napoleonic podcast napoleon 101 which you did with cameron riley i mean is it safe to say that your interest is centered in napoleon or do you have other interests in history too well i've got a lot of interest in history uh it all started off back when i was a kid my my father was had been in france uh, and he and he brought back some postcards from from paris not that kind of postcard, I hasten, <laughs> hasten to point out. Uh, I had pictures of the Arc de Triomphe, etc. They were small, black and white postcards. You know, this was in the 40s, I suppose. Uh, and he would tell me stories uh, about Napoleon from time to time. Old Nappy, he would call him. And, and they stuck. You know, I became sort of fascinated with him. And, and, and then he would also tell me I, I also became fascinated, you know, with Alexander the Great and especially Julius Caesar. Uh, so those three stuck, you know, that's the old great man theory of history, I suppose. You know, uh, that was interesting. And, and when I eventually taught high school, as we'll talk about later, mm. uh, the, main, the main thing I taught was world history and honors world history. Uh, I took a class at Florida State, uh, published the paper, got a book contract, and the rest, as they say, is history. To, to further answer your question, yeah, sure. in addition to Napoleon, I, I really have a special interest in ancient history, particularly ancient Rome, and, and uh, I've, I've, I've traveled uh, to, to a lot of Roman sites and, and so on as well, of course, as Napoleonic sites uh, in my life. I've, I've been fortunate to travel in Europe a great deal, and uh, I just find it all very fascinating. 
Mm, mm, as do I. Yeah, I think for my for myself, I'd love to visit more actual historical places to kind of, I suppose, put an image to what you read from a book. There's nothing like actually going there yourself. I mean, putting you on the spot, do any kind of specific areas that you visit really stick out to you? Well, you round up the usual suspects. Uh, certainly, Paris for the all the obvious reasons, uh, Napoleonic and 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 other. Uh, Rome uh, is an amazing city to visit, uh, but I've also been to the original Olympic Village, for example. I've run uh, on the original Olympic track. <laughs> Athens, Athens, and all of Greece is spectacular. I could I could I could ramble on and on and on and pe- people who have heard me on uh, Napoleon 101 know that I am very capable of going on and on and on. Yes indeed. Well there's many ample opportunities to come for you to ramble on but I I I think I'd I'd love to know because as someone who would like to be an academic I, I as one of my ambitions is to teach history say at third level and use this podcast to kind of open up history to, as a discipline, but also to kind of use it to advance my, say, career in history, if you like. So sure. I suppose I suppose in your case, I'd just be interested and curious to kind of know your experience with university and even kind of how your historical career developed, say. <laughs> well, n- there's never a short answer. Uh, oh, boy, I like long for answers. For me. <laughs> and, 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 and I've had quite the very career, and we'll talk more about that later, I think. But mm. f- as far as university is concerned, uh, I graduated uh, with a Bachelor of Science at the University of Iowa in 1971, uh, a Master of Arts in, from Northern University of Northern Iowa in 1972. Then I went to Southern Illinois University in Carbondale for a couple of years, uh, working on a doctorate, but my committee fell apart, and 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 my first wife uh, uh, ran off with my best friend, uh, and, and so I ended up going up to uh, teach at the University of Wisconsin uh, campus, and Fond du Lac was a two-year campus. Eventually, I ended up at Madison and took some courses at the University of Wisconsin there, uh, moved to Arizona, to Phoenix, and, and got a Master of Education from Arizona State University in 1991. Mm. Then I was in, moved to Florida, was teaching there, and I got an outstanding uh, teacher scholarship to attend uh, uh, Oxford University, yes. Exeter, Exeter College, in the summer of 1996. And then in 96 and 97, I took a, a few doctoral level uh, classes. They were reading classes, so I didn't have to be on campus from Don Horward at Florida State University. So I've, I've been to quite a few uh, schools over the years, and I, I do have uh, three degrees uh, and a wonderful summer at Oxford to show for it. <laughs> very good, very good. I, I I remember seeing the the Oxford experience, and I just I was curious because I, I applied to Cambridge and to Oxford myself. And I got accepted into both, but the funding didn't come through. So it's kind of, it's being pushed to the future a little bit. But then again, I'm getting married and everything else. So probably for the best for the moment to kind of set yeah. up home and, first. And, and, and I, have, I have to tell our listeners, I'm, I'm, I'm a little miffed about this, about this whole deal with the marriage and everything. You know, it, this would have worked out better for me if we had done it tomorrow, which is, would have been a Friday uh, instead of today. But but I was told in no uncertain terms that the stag party was more important than the Markham podcast. And I, I w- I'm particularly outraged by that. And I'm even more outraged by the fact that I was not invited to the stag 
party. I I do not understand, you know, just how how many insults can I can I have hurled at me and and stand for it? <laughs> well, now you're making me look bad, dear oh dear. Oh, I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> there are two mitigating factors in in your favor. Sure. I have to say, number one, uh, you are in Ireland, and I am in Toronto, Canada, so it would be a little difficult for me to make the stag party. True. Uh, and, and and my wife may or may not want me to go to said stag party. Uh, but the other thing, to be fair, if, if you invited me and I showed up, uh, all of the lovely young ladies who you might come across there would be, uh, they, they, they'd all be focused on me and, and you and the other young guys just would not have a chance. So you know. Yes, of course. Well, thank you for doing me that favor and, and no showing because... <laughs> yeah, they they would be offering to help me walk across the street or getting getting me a more comfortable chair at my age. But what the heck? <laughs> well, well, nothing wrong with a more comfortable chair. Nothing at That's... all. <laughs> very good. Yes, yes. Well, indeed, it's a very it's been a very crammed past few months. But yeah, I managed oh, yeah. to fit this managed to fit this crazy mad birthday project for the podcast around the same time as I'm getting married, and and thankfully Anna, my future wife has the patience of a saint, so she doesn't seem to mind all that much, but we'll see as time goes on. <laughs> yeah, time will tell. Well, I've, I have I know all about marriages. I've, I've had three of them, so... Uh... <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, the uh, I, I have to add that the stag is actually in Amsterdam. So, oh, my. Yes, so, I mean, purely historical purposes, of course, you you must you must be be aware, but the actual trip itself will be very educational and, and very, very uh, useful for, yes, for my future I, studies. I have been to that district in Amsterdam. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Amsterdam is a, is a beautiful city. I absolutely love Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I was there when I was 17, but we went on this very boring canal trip. We didn't get to see any the museums or go on any of the proper kind of non-touristy places. So I'm looking forward to properly taking it in. You must go to the palace. They have a wonderful collection of Empire furniture. Oh, I love – yes, I will. I yeah, will. You don't – properly... You will not want to miss the palace, trust me. Mm-hmm. Oh, I will. I'll look. I'll track it down. In search of uh, William of Orange's ghost, I am. Also, <laughs> Yo- Johann DeWitt's ghost as well, uh, a character who we've been very familiar with in the last few episodes of the podcast, an unsung hero of Dutch history. But in any case, I'm getting sidetracked already. Well, this, this is, is going to happen when you have me on the show, my friend. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Oh, well, well, we've come prepared. I have these questions in front of me just in case such an eventuality should happen. Oh, and I've, I've, I've got them in front of me with an outline of my answers, and already my answers have been substantially longer than the outline. <laughs> well, that's a good sign, I think. Great value, for great content and great value. That's that's what we're after here. Yes. <laughs> so I, I'd like to know, because I, from my experience in, in university, it's, it had been very hard to kind of get my lecturers or professors onto podcasts and make them see what I was doing kind of thing with the podcast. So I, might, I guess my question for you is, how did you transition from kind of academia and teaching and everything else to participating in a podcast maybe not even just maybe not necessarily asking the question here of how did napoleon 101 happen but more did did you kind of 
come across podcasts organically by yourself or were you made aware of them by Cameron Riley when he was like out of the blue? Hey, do a podcast yeah. with me. Well, <laughs> we're, we're going to talk about this again later, but yeah, you're absolutely correct. Uh, I was only vaguely aware of podcasts when, when Cameron called me uh, or emailed me. Uh, he, he explained you know, what he wanted to do and, and uh, how many people he thought he might reach and so forth and so on. And uh, so I said, sure, let's, let's, let's give it a go. And uh, we, I think, did, did quite well together, as, as you'll see. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely, and I and I think to to answer another part of your question, I think that podcasts are in fact very important, and they're important for for I suppose multiple reasons. The two that most come to mind is first of all, unlike a book or even a TV documentary, you can bring a whole bunch of people together in in the course of uh, of a podcast. Uh, you can have the usual, you know, two to some like Cameron and I, but we had lots of guests from, from all over the world. And, you know, the, the wonderful thing about, about a podcast is they don't have to be there in person. You, you know, you, you know, I'm not, I'm not in Ireland and you're not in Toronto. So, sure. so, uh, and, and Cameron was in Australia for heaven's sake, and I was in the States. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you have issues of, uh, time zone differences but you know in, in, in his case it was not not even the same day you know but uh uh it, it really does make for a, a, a opportunity to bring a great breadth of, of, of people and it also reaches at least potentially a very large audience you know in in in, in the tens of thousands or maybe in, in i think there's some cases i've heard even reached in the millions um, I, I don't know the history podcasts that do that well <laughs> But larger than most books. I mean, very, very few history books really make the bestseller list and, and sell millions of copies. You know, sure. you know, there's lots and lots of very good history books out there that have been bought by 2000 people. But they are in libraries and, and hopefully they reach people that way. Now, I imagine that the TV shows that I've been on probably reach a greater audience than 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 podcasts uh, because they're they're shown you know quite widely and, and a lot of people like them. I've been on the Smithsonian and the History, the National Geographic as a consultant, the Learning Discovery Channels. I've also been on a channel called RT, which stands for Russia Today. Oh my! Uh, which is an <laughs> English language uh, Russian uh, television uh, channel that's been in the news with all the. Yes, the, the 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 stuff about Russia's possible interference, uh, you know, in the American elections and and and, and so on, uh, and a lot of the media call it Russian television RT, but it's actually it's called Russia Today. But they were interviewing me. I was there in Moscow for a, a congress on on Napoleon, and and they took me to their studios and interviewed me about Napoleon, not not about American politics. <laughs> Yes, yes. That well, that, that could be for the best. Yeah, I, yes. I'm aware of. I'm aware of uh, Russia Today, and aware of the fact that they changed their name to RT after a certain length of time. Like they, they kind of rebranded themselves <clears throat> somewhat stealthily. I might add. They, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, perhaps, perhaps it's dangerous to venture into current issues as a as a history podcaster. I do try to <laughs> avoid them, but sometimes they come up with when when you least expect it. I mean, the last year it's been very hard to ignore politics. I mean, let, let's be yes. honest, it's been going on rampantly outside our windows whether we like it or not so exactly 
Mm. Maybe even talk a little bit about that. You mentioned you were on a bit of National Geographic and, and that kind of thing. I myself now was never on television or anything to, to that extent, but thanks mostly to nepotism, it has to be said. I had to, I, I was able to get an interview and talk to a few people in the BBC about history and podcasting and, and that kind of thing. Now, this is coming up on two years ago. In fact, it is two years ago now, but it was kind of a great experience for me creatively because it kind of imbued me with this sense of confidence. Did you, I suppose you're at that stage in your career, you didn't necessarily need that imbuing of confidence, but how did you find it overall? Oh, I really enjoyed it. And and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but, but uh, uh, you know, Cameron and I had de- developed great camaraderie. I, I still get emails and uh, Facebook messenger things and so on from people who have just now discovered the podcast mm. and they write to tell me that how, how much they like it and, and how I really have made them fascinated with Napoleon or changed their image of Napoleon and so on. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I really, I really like it. And, you know, like like any educator, any historian, any person who's lectured and stuff, I guess to a certain extent we all like the sound of our own voices. And so there's there's a little bit of an ego thing that way as well. But, of course, what I always kept reminding myself is I am going to reach tens of thousands of people with this. Mm. And, and like a book, it goes on virtually forever. I mean, I suppose – you know, a camera could decide to shut down the whole thing or whatever. I, I can't imagine that. Uh, I don't know what happens to it when, when he dies, but he's still quite young, so that's a long way off. You know, it, it's it's a gift that keeps on giving. Like I say, just yesterday I got a, an email from somebody thanking me for, for what we did, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very happy about that. Yeah, it's it's great to see that the podcast, it has a genuine legacy, like it genuinely, like when you look at it as well, speaking purely from the kind of how it established history podcasting in a way, that was the second history podcast I listened to after the history of Rome. And I don't know how aware you are of the history of Rome, but to me, the history of Rome was the first kind of solo person podcast, like a guy talking by himself, right. whereas your guys' one was the first one with two people having a legitimate conversation about history. And to me, that was incredible because you just didn't get that. Like, as far as I'm aware, there was nowhere to listen to people kind of shooting the breeze on history and hearing the two of you talk about it and like be quite cordial, get on very well. Like you're two normal people talking about history. And I I just couldn't believe my luck coming across it. So I, I, I guess my question in a roundabout way is how did... How on earth did that kind of a process for taking part in Napoleon 101 come about? And maybe as a kind of, uh, to qualify this, did you have any doubts before taking it on? Well, well, first of all, let's not get carried away here, Zach. I'm not sure I want to 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 describe Cameron as normal. Okay, <laughs> we, we, we have we have to be careful with our our terminology here. Sure, yes. Uh, was I apprehensive about it a little bit? But and and here it gets back to to your comment. I really think that a, a two person conversation is far more interesting than hearing just one person talk and uh, I've, I've listened to at least little bits of one person things and well they can be interesting and they can be humorous and so on uh, I just always found the give and take 
of uh, of a two or and sometimes we had three of us on when we had a guest. Uh, I've always found that to be to be of uh, a greater interest. Pretty much the way it worked out is Cameron emailed me, told me the situation, told me what he'd like to do, told me how we could go about it, and uh, and I I said sure, let's let's give it a try. Now I never envisioned. Mm. It was going to go for 157 or however <laughs> however many it's been, averaging about an hour and a quarter. Yeah. You know, that, that, that was certainly beyond my expectation. We knew it would go sometime because we, we sort of based the outline of how we handled it. On, on my book, Napoleon for Dummies. You know, if, if you read Napoleon for Dummies, you will see that organizationally, that's the approach that we at least initially took. And of course, we, we branched out to do, you know, specific subtopics and bring guests on and so forth and so on. Sure. Uh, so we went, we went way beyond. I, I, wasn't, I was not just reading Napoleon for Dummies, although obviously <laughs> the information in the book will match up you know, with the information uh, and the podcast, because they were they're both biographical uh, looks at Napoleon, and 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 so of course the the basic information is going to be the same. And you you had asked me uh, in, in a conversation if I'd ever thought about starting my own podcast. Yeah, you know, on on Napoleon, and uh, I don't think I ever really thought about that. For one thing, and 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 you know. You, even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Your eight-part series may end up being strong competition, uh, but I... I think Napoleon 101 is the gold standard for mm. Napoleon for Napoleon podcasts, and I'm not sure that I could add very much to all that if I tried to do it. I, I, if I was going to do my own podcast, I'd be more likely to do something on contemporary politics, either in, in the U.S., Canada, or, or, or the world. I, I think that would be something that, that uh, I might add something to. 
But of course, I'm very pleased to be on 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 this podcast. And, <laughs> Good save. <laughs> oh no 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 no! no I, I said that earlier too. No, I'm, sure. I was I was delighted when you contacted me. Of course, you've had to harass me mercilessly uh, to 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 get this done. And Cameron would be nodding his head when he hears this because he's been known to have to harass me mercilessly as well to get me in gear. And indeed, I hope that Cameron and I will will do some some more together in the future. He he and Ray, by the way. Uh, starting with uh, Caesar and then Alexander and then on to the Cold War and others have really done some very, very good podcasts as well. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. while I'm a little disappointed that, that, that I'm not there, and, and by the way, I had the chance to, to do that, but I, I just got so busy with, with a lot of things that going on in my life, uh, particularly the last five or six years, that, that, that I just wasn't able to, uh, to do it. But uh, – I, I, I do hope that he and I will do some more in the future, and, and, and you may want to have me on again sometime too. Sure, absolutely. And let's be honest, Cameron Riley's a bit of a podcast machine at the moment, so it seems like he has a new one out every, every so often. He's amazing. He, he's just he's a force of nature when it comes to his work ethic for podcasts. Mm-hmm. I think people like him, it's very important to remember. And, and yes, I mean, yes, I'm... I'm obviously very happy to have you on, honoured in a sense, but at the same time, it's only right to recognise that Cameron Riley was the 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 nagger behind it all. <laughs> yep, I think who... a lot of people were inspired by the work that he's done. I'll, I'll, I'll claim some credit for it. I think that Napoleon 101 is probably you know what what really established his reputation. Uh, got it got it really going, and then when sure. he. Because he and I also did a few episodes of a bio, uh, biography uh, podcast. Uh, oh, let's see. We did – I think we may have done a little bit on, on Napoleon. We did Caesar, Alexander, Charlemagne. Uh, it seems to me we might have done one more. I have to go back and look. But uh, you know that was relatively short-lived, but it was something else that, that, that I enjoyed doing as well. Mm. And they were one-offs. I mean they were like one episode on Caesar kind of thing. Right, right. Well, I mean, would it be fair to describe him as a hard taskmaster? Oh, he's a real slave driver. <laughs> not, not, no, no. I, I got to tell you, I'm, uh, Cameron is a really great guy. Mm. And as I've said before, we, we really worked well together. He, he, was, he was always very accommodating to my schedule. And remember, we had a very large time difference. Uh, yes, yeah. Where, we, and we have become very good friends. And look, we don't always agree. We didn't always agree on Napoleon. He spends way too much time trashing my country, the U.S., and and I frankly <laughs> wish he had attacked Trump nearly as much as he attacked Hillary. But yeah. we're, we're both left of center. We we both probably agree on, on most things uh, political. Mm. Oh, and by the way, we did a hour or so long uh, video podcast – uh, the three of us, Ray and, and, and Cam and I, uh, on on comparing Napoleon, uh, Alexander the Great, and Julius Caesar, which uh, I think it costs five dollars, but you can find that somewhere, and that's uh, you know great fun as well. Mm, yes, I, if I recall, there was he has pre- a premium podcast uh, feed. He's doing very well with that as well. Yeah, I don't know how much money he 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 makes because of course I don't get any of it, but. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm. I hope he makes some money. Of course, he's he's got the expenses to deal with. He's paying for the extra bandwidth and the equipment, and and he's putting in, you know, the like you, the the, the work of editing and getting the stuff up on the air and so forth. It's it's not just, uh, you know, as simple as the average person might realize. So mm. uh, if he can make a few bucks, more power to him. Absolutely, yeah. I think editing is probably the most tedious part of the whole process, to be honest. Yeah. Well, that's like writing a book, editing a book, going through it, and and you know, okay, you got to you got to knock out twenty percent of your pages. Oh my God, now what? You know, so it's it's <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, like how about how about maybe just mention a few of your books? Do do any in particular stand out to you? I mean, you did mention Napoleon for Dummies a lot in the Napoleon 101 show and I think that's a great obviously by the title it's a great introduction to Napoleon himself but can you think of any maybe that would kind of stand out as more say specific and are you, are you proud of any in particular well my 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 most recent book which is uh, the road to waterloo napoleon uh, uh, the road to saint helena napoleon after waterloo looks basically at the 100 days mm. most of which I, I, most of what I look at is is what happens after the Battle of Waterloo. Although I have some stuff in there on the on the uh, the lead up to Waterloo, because decisions were made during that period that greatly affected the outcome. Sure, uh, and that's an that's an area that it's not looked at nearly as carefully. Uh, as I looked at it, and I used a lot of original sources, memoirs. Uh, I had all of the laws of the Hundred Days translated into English, uh, which I, I plan on publishing eventually. And and so you know, I, I had really good sources, and, and I'm I'm quite uh, I'm quite proud of of, of that. I, I get him up to essentially when he leaves for for Saint Helena. Mm. Uh, another book of the, you, you're, you're Irish, so so <laughs> I have, I have to mention my book uh, Napoleon and and Doctor Verling uh, on Saint Helena. Doctor Verling was an Irish doctor uh, in the, the 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 British Army, stationed uh, uh, on Saint Helena, and and he was the doctor for a lot of uh, Napoleon's entourage, uh, but because Sir Hudson Lowe wanted him to to be Napoleon's doctor, uh, Napoleon refused. But Verding wrote a journal, basically a diary, mm. uh, of his time there. And it is a wonderful insight <laughs> to the political insanity yeah. on, on the island between the British and the French and between the French and the French and the British and the British and Hudson Lowe and Napoleon and you name it. So I published in English that journal in its entirety wow. in, in that book. It's also been translated into French, and they actually beat me to the punch. But, but <laughs> theirs, theirs was just a, a paperback of, of the uh, – just of the diary, whereas I, I have a lot of other stuff in there and letters back and forth. I, I went to the low papers and, 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 and transcribed an awful lot of letters from Hudson Lowe to Bathurst and, and you know various other people on the island. And I own all of the memoirs in English by by the the people who were there and and, and used used what they had to say. So it's uh, it's it, it's I'm 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 really quite proud of that book. Mm. You know I've I've written some other books as well, and and I've got a new book coming out sometime maybe this summer called Simply Napoleon, and uh, that's still in the process of being edited. <laughs> that's what I should be doing right now probably is editing <laughs> the book. You know, but so those are those are the ones that. That that really probably oh oh yeah Imperial Glory 
Mm. Uh, anyone who emails me knows that uh, um, two of my emails have Imperial Glory in them. And I, I had tra- – my, my French is not good enough to do this myself, but I had a professional translator uh, translate all of Napoleon's uh, bulletins. Wow. Uh, and and also a whole bunch of other letters and and things that were important and and I I had that published uh, as as Imperial Glory the Bulletins of Napoleon's Grand Armée. Dummies, by the way, has been translated into Dutch and French and Russian. Wow! So that book has probably reached a fair number of people, even though it wouldn't be on a bestseller list. Mm-hmm. Isn't it amazing to think that, like, and that's what I love. Another thing I love about history podcasting, I only mentioned it earlier as well, that it can reach people. And uh, do you ever get kind of, I mean, do, do you miss the, the process of, of podcasting in that sense that you, you could be surprised? I know you said that you, you do get emails the, the occasional time and, and yesterday specifically, but do you miss knowing that you're reaching people on the airways that you might not necessarily reach through podcasting? Of course, that's that's one reason I'm here with you today. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's it's kind of fun to get back into it and know that. And I don't know what kind of viewership you have, but uh, you know I suspect it's pretty substantial. And and it and it may not totally overlap those people who have watched uh, Napoleon 101. I'm I'm sure some of my quote unquote fans, if you will, will be will be listening to to your series and and, mm. and to this particular uh, episode. But I suspect there will be some who who may have not heard the Napoleon one hundred and one, and now they'll they'll hear me and you talking, and they may be inclined to go listen to the other as well. Yeah, well, that's the hope to get to get the history to as many people as possible. And indeed, that's I did a as part of this. I explained a little bit, <laughs> much to your. I'm not sure if you were shocked or disgusted or amazed all at the same time. But after I explained the the premise of of Five Weeks to Run Wild to you, one one of the episodes that will be released in that was one called Why Study History, and within that, I basically kind of uh, like. It's my apology for studying history, pretty much, and and why I feel why I feel it's important because history tends to get a lot of flack, especially nowadays in schools. It's not very well taught, and I think there's a lot to be desired in in that area in general. And I think it attaches there's a stigma attached to history where people think that it can be kind of done away with because it's not practically useful. But my whole kind of argument revolved around the idea that. If you get rid of history, if you get rid of our connection to the past, then, well, we know roots in the present, so we won't have any identity and we won't know how to kind of define ourselves going forward. I just maybe just like to ask you, do you think that's kind of a fair argument? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I'm disgusted at, at the the move <clears throat> away from from teaching history at least as much as as uh, as it used to be taught I, my my wife is a scientist she's a geophysicist uh and we certainly need science and math that's an important kind of thing to study and 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 to have people trained in that so that we can move our technology forward and work on ways of of protecting our environment uh, and against climate change and so forth and so on and 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 that's all well and good but you know, the old saying is, ye, ye who, you know, do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I agree with you. And, and I also agree that, unfortunately, it's, it's not always well taught mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, there's an, especially in high school, uh, uh, there's an old expression, you know, what do you call the social studies teacher or the history teacher? 
coach. You know, uh, a lot, a, a lot of schools. That's where they dump their coaches, and they, the coaches can be very, very good coaches, and they can be very good teachers. But oftentimes, it's not really their main field of study. Now, some schools, of course, make it a point to to make it their main field of study. You know, and and uh, when when they various schools hired me, they they knew they were hiring someone whose focus was, in fact, on history. Uh, and I've got quite a few teaching awards uh, as a result. But what, what really I like, and it's a little bit like my podcast emails that I get, I, I'm, st- I'm still Facebook friends with a number of my students and, mm. and we comment from time to time. And I, it had, this hadn't happened for a little while because, uh, you know, it's been a while now but, but, uh, since I retired. But, but I, I would get emails from students and indeed, when I was still teaching, I would have students come to my room and and sometimes say, you know, Mr. Markham, I, you know, I look back at you. You you you're the one who really turned me around and made me realize that learning could be a good thing, or made me realize that history was interesting. And this would be not just my honor students who you might expect to say that, but mm. this would be the students who are frankly a pain in the butt. You know, uh, in 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 the classroom, and you sure. figure, yeah, they're 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 going nowhere. And 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 you know, later I would say, you know, Mr. Markham, I just graduated from the University of Washington, and I've got you to thank for a lot of that. Well, they have themselves to thank for a lot of it, mostly. But but uh, I'm always glad to to hear that I that I made a difference. And and I'm hardly unique. Every teacher, you know, and and, and every professor. Because mm. I taught at the university level as well, they we all like to to hear that we've made a difference in the lives of our students. Sure, and I think there's so there's so much to be said for that. I mean, sometimes when people talk about teaching or going to a career of teaching, it's not really emphasized how much how valuable those people are. I know for my own sakes, even when I was doing the podcast in the early stages, I had a specific lecturer who really turned me around and kind of got me more interested in the actual history itself and there's a, a like don't, don't by no means uh don't don't reduce the actual impact you have because like we said there are teachers that can teach but put it this way there's a difference between teaching and then instilling knowledge in someone i mean teaching someone doesn't right. necessarily mean that they're actually going to learn and it takes a level of passion and a level of kind of well that's it the, yeah. the, the passion is what the passion is what I what I, I think I brought to the classroom, you know, and, and also the understanding and some teachers is basically, you know, names and dates and, and that's mm-hmm. about it. And I mean, I mean, no disrespect. They, they, they do what they can. But my students always understood that I had a passion for history, that this was my thing. I wasn't teaching this just because the principal said, hey, we need a history teacher. You're it. You know, they, they knew that I wanted to be in the classroom doing doing that. And, 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 and I and I took them further than, than than they might have expected. I did a lot of research projects. Uh, and I also did humor. I composed uh, some poetry based on Edgar Allan Poe, but about about the the classwork they were going to have, and you know, <laughs> I did things like that. And you know, I brought music in French Revolutionary music, for example. I had a, a poetry that was written by people on Hadrian's Wall. I mean, you you bring in, and I had some very very good videos. You bring in a variety of things, so it's not just you in front of the classroom all the sure. time. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know you can you can do some pretty amazing things. You, you asked me if I missed uh, podcasting, and of course I do. But I I'll be honest, I'm 
probably never going to go back into the classroom. Uh, but I but I miss teaching. I I really really enjoyed uh, uh, teaching. I've had a lot of other things that I've done in my career, but but by by all means, teaching is uh, is what I, I I had a real passion for, and and uh, I really liked the kids. I've known teachers who didn't like the kids, and how can you teach if you don't like the kids? You know, <laughs> even the pains in the butt. Yeah. And the pre- the principals always told me that I sent fewer people to the office for disciplinary reasons than any other teacher they had because I dealt with the issues in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. Well, now that's something that I'm I'm not necessarily looking forward to. In my see, in my head, it's easier to teach at third level in a university because people generally the only people you'll be teaching are the ones that kind of want to be there. As in, you won't be teaching high school kids that well, are, are doing history because it's part of the curriculum. As in, you're not going to have people who are in a history class in college by default. They're there because they want to be there. And generally, they're paying to be there too. So, Well, or their parents are paying and their parents told them they had to go or they felt they had to go. You're, you're right for the most part, mm. but, but college students sleep in class too. Mm-hmm. College students skip classes because they're too busy playing bridge or, or chasing women or, or men. Uh, you know, there's, or, or, or they were, you know, up way too late at the pub at Tipple Bar. And uh, so they just couldn't make it to their eight o'clock in the morning class, you know, that, that sort of thing. So <laughs> it's, it's not quite as idyllic as you make it out to be, mm. but it is, it is easier in many ways. On the other hand, when you get them in high school, I've taught, I've taught as, as early as ninth grade. I actually did sixth grade one year, which was not as much fun. They were, they were nice kids, but you can only teach so much uh, to that level. Uh, but when you're getting them between ninth and twelfth grade, which is, I, I suppose, you would say that was second level uh, high school, you, you really have more of a chance to mold them sure. and to inspire them and and to 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 show them that learning is good and to maybe get them to want to go to a, a university or a college or even a community college somewhere mm-hmm. uh so i think in high school you have a, a greater opportunity to make a real real difference because you're 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 late enough in their life that you're you're not dealing with the elementary school school or even middle school kinds of things you know where they're discovering hormones and so on you you've got them early enough that that you can you can move them forward mm, mm. and i taught mostly sophomores my only real competition well i had two competition girls and boys of course you know <laughs> discovering each other and uh, that was the period of time because they were 15 to 16 years old and that's when they would be studying to take their driver's license oh, test oh yes more than once, I discovered that the open textbook had hidden inside of it on the desk the driver's license review book. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we have rambled far afield from <laughs> from our, our discussion, I suppose. I would expect nothing less. But actually, no, this is all this is all good because it it, it enlightens me and it enlightens listeners more to what a teacher is like and what an academic is like. And I think there's real value. And I think my listeners will appreciate that. So thanks for, thanks for your rambling. It was very useful. Well, your next question, I I have an even longer ramble prepared. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suppose if we're talking about your career as a historian, academic fan of medicine, you could say, I mean, tell us a bit about that. Maybe, 
maybe in terms of like to to kind of put it in a handy box perhaps you could describe say an average day that that you would have had and what that really kind of looked like well Zach, there's there's no such thing as an average day for me, <laughs> and I could I could I could ramble on and on and on about that because I, you know, a lot of people they have more or less one career. They'll be they'll be a teacher all their life, or they'll be a lawyer all their life, or they'll be a scientist all their life, or 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 a day laborer all their life, whatever you know, whatever it is. But I've done an awful lot. Yeah. In addition. In addition to all of the education, I've had a very varied career. At one point, for example, I owned a professional photography studio uh, for, for a year or so. I specialized in wedding photography. I would go out on, on, and do weddings. Wow. Uh, and and I, was, I was a good photographer. I worked for a number of years for both the Wisconsin and Arizona state governments, including a stint in the Wisconsin State Senate as a committee clerk. Wow. And indeed, in 1976, when I was uh, living in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, uh, I ran for uh, Fond du Lac County Clerk. Uh, I was actually on the ticket with Jimmy Carter in 1976. <laughs> I was, I wow. was way, I was way down the ticket, and I was Democratic County part, part, Democratic Party County Chair, and I was Vice Chair of the State Platform Committee, and I was Vice Chair when I moved to Madison, Wisconsin, of Dane County Democratic Party. So I've been very active in, in politics all my life, uh, which is one of the things that gets Cameron and I going. And <laughs> I, I, I taught two years at the University of Wisconsin at Fond du Lac, which is a two-year uh, feeder school for the main four-year schools, and I've taught in several community colleges. But of course, Mainly, I've had a 17-year career teaching high school in Arizona, Florida, and state of Washington. Mostly world history, but I've also taught literature, comparative government, Washington history, uh, world geography, maybe one or two others. As an academic, I get involved with a group called the Consortium on the Revolutionary Era. Mostly South Universities, although it's expanding, uh, it's out in North Texas State now, and it's up in, in Philadelphia. They have an annual meeting, and you know, students and professors give papers, and I've given quite a number of of papers there, and 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 they've been they've been published. And then a guy named Ben Weeder uh, in Montreal established the International Napoleonic Society. Uh, which I he quickly made me a fellow because I was getting known in the field, and uh, he made me the editor in chief of his journal, uh, and then wanted to do a series of international Napoleonic congresses. So in '96 he made me the executive vice president and put me in charge of that. We did one of the finest congresses you'll ever ever hear of in your life in 1997 in Alessandria, uh, Italy, which is where Marengo, uh, near where Marengo was fought, the, the three levels of government uh, and numerous businesses contributed. Our contacts there raised the equivalent of $100,000 or so, which is a lot for a week-long Congress. We had, mm. court, we had a cordon bleu chef in to, to prepare the meals uh, and so on. It was just absolutely amazing. Sounds and, of great. course, doing, doing this and doing the, 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 the journals obviously got my name out there more and more contacts. And uh, 
I, I think I've mentioned I, I took a, a, a Napoleon class and, 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 and at Florida at Arizona State and and the teacher had me the prof had me publish the paper uh, that led to a book contract and and uh, so so now you know I've, uh, I've my name is on the cover of at least ten books I've got the podcasts plural now with you a TV. <laughs> TV programs. I've published countless articles, international Napoleonic congresses all around the world, lectures, museum uh, exhibitions of my collection. I I guess I would have done, as they would say on grade school report cards, I have exceeded expectations. (laughs) As for my medication. Yes, indeed. Well, I've always liked a good single malt scotch. (laughs) <laughs> and that became sort of the standby. And once or twice, I, I was told I had perhaps overdosed on my medication because because they could hear they could hear the effect. Uh, <laughs> nonsense, indeed. I always like to joke my I, I have this medication, but I it's imported, and you always worry about it. And I worry that it may be past the expiry date. Uh, because it's 12, 15, 18, 21 years old, and I don't know if, you know, but uh, however, your listeners, and certainly the ones who know me from Napoleon 101, Mm. will be disillusioned, absolutely disillusioned, to hear that my medication right now is black tea. Oh, dear. It's a quarter of three in the afternoon, (laughs) and that's, my normal my normal medication is more effective in the evenings. I see, I see. Yes, that's very understandable. Well, I I don't have any uh, medication myself, but if I did, it would probably be a I don't know I don't know how where you are of craft beers, but I think like a nice iced cold beer made by some kind of independent brewing company or something like that. Yeah, I always find I, it hits the spot. My wife likes to drink craft beers and cider. I try not to hold that against her. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Well, uh, as a man of distinguished taste, it it is great to uh, to hear where the where the where the man J. David Markin came from. It, it really is great. I'm very interested to know. Well, I'm 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 glad you are. It's usually people tell me not to talk so much about myself. So <laughs> so it, it, it's it's kind of fun to have somebody who actually wanted me to talk about myself. <laughs> Alrighty, what did we think of that? I think that J. David Markham is, as I said before, a very, very interesting character. And again, we are indebted to him for coming on the podcast and enlightening us about, well, where he kind of came from and where he emerged from apparently the abyss, from St. Helena, you might even say, to kind of wow us with his Napoleonic knowledge. It's a relatively recent interest for him. Well, in some ways it is, in other ways it's not, because it's something that's been kind of growing within him for many, many years. But he sort of exploded onto the scene less than 30 years ago, and here he is now, talking to us, talking to me, letting us know what's what. If you've listened to this part of the interview in full, don't worry, there's two more parts to come after this, and they are released right away, since I made sure of that, so go and listen to them now. They'll be more Napoleonic-focused, and you'll enjoy them just as much as this one. So thanks for listening, history friends, and I'll be talking to you all very soon. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.